Welcome to Healthcare Rounds. I'm your host, John Marchica, CEO of Darwin Research Group and faculty associate at the Arizona State University College of Health Solutions. Here we explore the vast and rapidly evolving healthcare ecosystem with leaders across the spectrum of healthcare delivery. Our goal is to promote ideas that advance the quadruple aim, including improving the patient experience, improving the health of populations, lowering the cost of care, and attaining joy in work. Please send your questions, comments, or ideas for Healthcare Rounds to podcast at darwinresearch.com. And if you like what you hear, please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get started. At the time of this episode's recording, Rob Allen was the Senior Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Intermountain Healthcare. He is now Intermountain's new President and Chief Executive Officer and began serving in this role on December 1st, 2022. In addition to Rob's 25-plus years of executive leadership at Intermountain, he has also held CEO roles at hospitals and health systems in Wyoming, New Jersey, and Massachusetts. A fellow of the American College of Healthcare Executives, Rob has served on many foundation, chamber, and service boards. Rob holds a Master of Business Administration degree from Utah State University and a Bachelor of Science degree in Operations Management from Brigham Young University. So I'm delighted today to speak with Uh, Rob Allen, who's the Chief Operating Officer for Intermountain. Um, We had a chance to catch up, uh, I guess it was like a week or two ago, and talk about what we were going to talk about Um, through the, uh, I always say the same thing, I've got to come up with a a different term, but through the magic of recording and podcasting, we will have already read a blurb about you, Um, but I thought it would be helpful just to start us off to say, or talk a little bit about what led you to where you are today at Intermountain. Well, thanks, John. It's good to be with you today and uh, look forward to our discussion. Enjoyed our, our pre-discussion here. And when I think about what led me here, um, it really goes back to my youth when I was growing up on a dairy farm in western Wyoming. My mother was a nurse, worked at a little hospital there that was about six miles from our house. And we lived in this valley that was about 40 miles long and 12 little farming communities and one highway that ran through the valley. And uh, whenever there was an ambulance that went down the highway, she would go to the house to make calls. And I remember we didn't have cell phones then. So the only, the only phone was in the house and we could be out in the barn milking cows out in the field, hauling hay. Didn't matter. She went to make the call because at the hospital, there was only one nurse on the doctor lived 30 miles away and uh, it took time to get back. And, and she would always check to see if they needed help. My parents encouraged me to go to college. I was the first in my family to get a bachelor's degree. And uh, when I was getting through that degree process, starting to think about what I wanted to do for my career, her example and healthcare and a desire to do things that really made a difference for communities led me into healthcare. I, and I'm not a nurse. You wouldn't want me to be your nurse, I'm sure. But, <laughs> uh, on the, the business and administrative side was my area of interest. And, and that, that got me into healthcare and has led me through my journey over the years through many hospitals and all across the country. I've, I've led organizations in Wyoming, New Jersey, Massachusetts, uh, Utah, and, and I've enjoyed it uh, every step of the way. Well, the way that you described where you grew up, it sounded uh, idyllic. It was, it was beautiful. It was small as far as population, and it was cold in the winter. So uh, <laughs> people talk about how wonderful Wyoming is, and it is. But, it's beautiful. Uh, you know, 20 to 40 below in the winter times uh, make you think twice sometimes about it, but especially if you're out milking cows twice a day in that uh, cold. But it was, a wonderful, it was a wonderful place to be raised. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, well, thanks for sharing that background. That's a little bit more more context 
Um, for me, I kind of grew up around healthcare because my dad worked for a big drug company. And uh, when I was coming out of business school, I had really three offers, Blue Cross Consulting, Gatorade, and Abbott. And I really thought that, you know, going the healthcare route, that there was something more meaningful, not that working on Gatorade wouldn't have been fun, but um, that's kind of what got me started. So, Rob, let's go 30,000 feet uh, to start off. Um, and COVID has really, I know we're a couple of years into it now, but it's had a, a really substantial effect on healthcare delivery systems. We've seen that. But where we are today in 2022, at the end of 2022, what would you say are some of the biggest challenges that health systems are facing due to due to COVID still? Now, it's a great question. And uh, it's been an interesting journey for everybody in the country and frankly, around the world uh, with the COVID pandemic as we've gone along. And we thought that several times along the way, we were facing some of the most challenging parts of it when we didn't know anything about the disease and we were trying to keep caregivers safe and give the best care to patients that we could. You know, that was a pretty challenging time when we couldn't get supplies and we had to shut down a lot of our elective work in order to maintain the supplies that we needed for the most emergent cases and like, try and keep our caregivers safe. We thought that was a pretty intense time that might have been the most uh, difficult, dramatic of the pandemic. But, you know, as we've worked through the pandemic, I think uh, one of the areas of most impact is the burnout that people have felt. We talk a lot about burnout in healthcare nowadays, but it really is an interesting environment. And you think about all that the caregivers have given over the last two and a half years through the pandemic. Um, you know, stories of people who would live in their basements or in hotels because they didn't want to uh, contaminate or risk exposure to their families, right? When they didn't, we didn't know anything about the virus um, and, and what a stress that was for them. Even though we at Intermountain were able to keep all of our caregivers employed, if they wanted to keep working, we gave them opportunity. Even when we shut down, we redeployed them. And, you know, we had nurses from the OR, you know, scrubbing the walls in the lobby and anything that, uh, you know, we could do to keep them busy and keep the paychecks coming. Many of them were in situations where in their home, if they, there were two wage earners, the other wage earner might have been furloughed or laid off or um, you know, there were just a lot of stresses, kids staying home from school that now had to be dealt with remotely. And how do you manage that while you're trying to work? And so the stresses were large and we realized a lot of the pressure, although intent inside the health uh, system side of it was um, dramatic and big in the other parts of their lives. So helping them through that became a focus for us, looking at how we might support and help sustain them. And now as we're coming out of hopefully this rolling pandemic, uh, how do we help people re heal and recover from that? You layer on that the fact, and you all remember the, you know, lining up of the fire trucks and, you know, cheering on the sure. healthcare workers at shift change that I think started mm -hmm. in New York with the huge onslaught that happened there of the virus. And that carried across the country and our nurses and doctors and others were heralded as heroes. It was a wonderful time for them, for all they were giving. And we come towards this part of the pandemic and we have doctors and nurses being spit on and, and punched in the ERs and, you know, abused in many ways. And, and folks who've gone from being, you know, these heroes to saying to folks, you know, we need to test you for COVID before you come in for a procedure. Or, you know, we would encourage you to get vaccinated and have these uh, outlashes that come at them have been quite a shift and, and been pretty draining as well as, of course, um, fearful for them as they come to work and have to deal with that. And I think those are some real challenges that have come out. 
is how do we help people heal and get back on, on even footing? You take that in addition to the realities of the labor shortages we're now facing in healthcare. Um, and so people not only are, are coming in and burn out and all these stresses into today's work environment, oftentimes we can't quite get enough help for them. And so shifts are running short staffed at times. Um, even if we can get staff, their contract labor, and that adds a dimension of frustration because contract labor gets paid more to bring them in. And I've been here helping the organization for all this time. And now you pay somebody else more to come in and fill that shift. And it is just out of balance at this point, And that's really hard. And then the hyperinflation realities of it, that not only you're impacting healthcare, which are add to our challenges for sure. Think about that for every caregiver out there or everybody in the country for that matter. You know, you go to fill up your, your tank of your car to get around and how much more that costs or the grocery store. Oh my gosh, you know, the difference in grocery prices today or just trying to get normal supply things, whether it's clothing or whatever else you're trying to get. And if you can get it, uh, oftentimes the costs are much higher. So the, the intensity of the pressures on folks, I think, have added to the challenges. And it's not just one, it's this building of things across the spectrum that have made it harder and harder along the way. What do you think is behind, or what was behind that shift? Do you think it was just that people got frustrated? They got frustrated with having to wear masks everywhere, being told what to do, you know, because it, we did go from this healthcare heroes. We were doing a thing on LinkedIn for a while there, the healthcare heroes identifying the, these folks. Um, and then it just seems like until who was it last week or the week before some well-known system um, issued a new sort of bill of rights. I know I'm getting this wrong, but effectively it said, if you're going to be a patient in this hospital, these are the rules that you've got to, you know, um, uh, abide by. And I just wonder what, it, maybe just, just discontent over time. I don't know. Speculation. I, I, you know, I think more are going to that and having to go to that. And it's, it's a challenge in healthcare because people get into healthcare to take care of other people. You know, when, when a patient comes into an ER or comes into an OR or a physician clinic, our doctors and nurses, you know, their immediate reaction isn't to be on guard. It's to open their arms and welcome you in and see what I can do to help you, right? And so they're, they're at an extremely vulnerable point trying to reach out to people at a time when there might be a backlash. I, I personally, I think that the COVID pandemic got too politicized, and I think it drove emotions at a time in the country when the country was finding a lot more divisive things coming forward. And I just, uh, you know, I feel bad for our caregivers, but I think in general, the turmoil of the divisiveness has been a problem. And I think all of that is fed in. And when you think of the uh, politicization of it and the divisiveness that's happening and the discontent that people are feeling, then it puts everybody on edge. And so, you know, people have opinions, you know, I don't like wearing masks and, uh, you know, it's nice not to be here today. And yet, if I walk into one of my hospitals, I'll be wearing a mask because we still have masks uh, protocols in place inside our hospitals and clinics. And, and that can be a bit tiring for folks. Absolutely. But I think more so than that is just the frustration with having your life disrupted, uh, the dis, mm -hmm. uh, you know, content in society in general. And when it's politicized, it drives deeper, I think, the divide. And if you're one that that doesn't want to be vaccinated and your doctor's saying, you know, it'd be a good idea if you get vaccinated. Um, people, because they're already on edge, may react differently than they would have in the past. And it's unfortunate. And we're not trying to force anybody to get vaccinated. We just want to help people stay healthy and well and 
follow the medicine and the science and, and do our best and people have to make their choices from there. But in the meantime, don't lash out at our caregivers, please. You know, yeah. those who are trying to take care of you, uh, be your ally and help take care of you. Yeah. Yeah. So true. And I hope, I hope, I don't think anybody listening to this podcast really has a problem with it. They're, these are healthcare people. So, um, so Monday, is this Monday in Becker's health system, cash reserves plummet. Um, Trent, they're mentioning Trinity, their uh, Ascension. So 2022 looks like a disaster. It seems like everything that we write about uh, or that I read about in the in the trades shows that this is going to be one of the worst financial um, years in, in, in maybe decades. So we've got inflation. We've got labor shortage, paying uh, higher wages for people. What else is behind why are the, why are these numbers looking so bad? I just saw what was it a something billion dollar loss at Kaiser. Yeah, it uh, it is an interesting year for sure. Um, when you think about the environment around us, think about how economics work in healthcare, and um, there's a lot of challenges for sure. And hyperinflation of its own nature creates pressures. But health systems, hospitals, uh, clinics. We contract with insurance companies for a rate for our services. So we, we have contracts that are in play. Sometimes those are a year, sometimes they're multi-year uh, contracts with organizations. So uh, why this is jumping up and the grocery store, you know, comes out and starts slapping new stickers on the bread because the bread just went up and, and they need to charge more for that. We don't have the option to charge more for our services or at least to collect more for our services because those paying us have an agreement with us already. We're locked into rates that are there, which create a real dilemma when your revenue stream is not going to go up for a while. And you're not even in a position to negotiate it unless you can convince the payers. Now you're back. Sorry, if you, you cut out for a second. So unless you can convince the payers. In healthcare, we have multi-year contracts sometimes or even just a, a year-long contract that sets our rates. And the payers have agreements with those buying insurance for a period of time at a certain rate as well. So we don't have the opportunity to increase revenue to offset increased costs. And yet the supplies are going up um, and we don't have a chance to cover that. Supplies are up since 2019, 18% in healthcare. Uh, you think of drugs, drugs are up 21% since 2019. And then the real challenging area is your wages. And wages are up depending on how you measure what sector of healthcare, they're up 25 to 29% since 2019. And wage, salary, wage and benefit make up about 40, 45% of your total cost. So think about how much that's jumping up and we can't adjust the revenue stream. And so now you have this huge compression that hits. I mean, for us this year, so we came through the pandemic and then the hyperinflation kicks in. We gave raises this year throughout the year that are over 300% more than our budget. So about four times, uh, you know, uh, what what it is in total cost and, and three times more than we had built into our financial plans. So I'm not surprised there's a crunch in healthcare. The real question and challenge comes, how much can those payment rates be adjusted as you look into next year and go forward to help offset that? And discussions with insurances, numbers that I'm seeing out there, I don't think we're going to get a full offset uh, for those inflationary factors. So we've got tough times ahead as well. I saw a projection from Kaufman Hall that it's expected that hospitals will do 3% worse next year than they're doing this year. 
And that's a factor of these raises aren't full impact this year because they you scale it through the year. Well, we're going to have the full year of those uh, costs at that higher level next year. And I think that's what's driving it. But those are, are huge impact points that the industry is going to have to wrestle with. And it, it's a challenge ahead for sure. We're going to have to think differently about how we design care delivery and how we deliver it. Yeah, it seemed to me that at least we'll say 2021, the Kaisers of the world were doing okay because they had the insurance product. And I'm sure that Intermountain was the same. You're, you're getting decent insurance revenue, people, or I should put it a different way, that you're not paying out as much as you're accustomed to paying out. And but that just doesn't seem to be the case now. And I, I agree with you. There's going to be um, a lot of change. Don't know exactly what those are going to be, but you can't sustain a system where everybody is losing money year over year over year. It's just, I mean, common sense. So I want to switch focus um, and talk a little bit about value-based care. So depending on how you measure it, I'd say it's probably 15 years in the making. I know Blue Cross Blue Shield was doing some neat stuff back in uh, 08, maybe, 09, the, the quality contract. Um, so back to the 30,000-foot question, how do you define value-based care? And then where does Intermountain sit today? Because I know originally they didn't participate in the MSSP program or Pioneers or any of that stuff. But today, I know you're much more advanced. So definition, and then talk a little bit about where you are. Yeah, value-based care, I think, is a wonderful uh, way to build our future in healthcare. And it, in my mind, creates alignment, which is what we're going to have to have to be successful. And a lot of times we talk about value-based care from the perspective of a financing mechanism. And that's an important part of the alignment. But value-based care is really about how you take, whether it's, um, you know, the, the, the patient, the provider, the broad group of clinicians, the payer, the health system. How do we create a scenario where everybody is striving for the same thing? And in a fee-for-service world, you know, there's an inherent incentive to say we need to do things to people in order to get paid, right? right? It, does the patient really want something done to them? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Does the insurance want you to do something to somebody? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. How do you create that alignment so that we're all working to the same end, and all of that work together deploys the resource in healthcare in the most efficient way and gets the better outcomes and keeps people more healthy. That's value-based care in my mind. And uh, it's complex. It's challenging. I'll, I'll tell you from our perspective, we really launched our work under population health into the value-based care arena in 2011 and had significant work around uh, that effort and thinking about how we changed our system design and how we did our work differently. We were a little surprised. We had our own insurance companies, so we were able to bring at-risk contracts over, of course. Today, we're sitting at 37% of our uh, payment is in risk pools before our merger with uh, SCL Health. It was actually pushing 50% with it. So we've got some new growth opportunity, but we've been heavy down this road. And a part of that, a large part, has been our own insurance. So that happened easily because it was internal decisions. But we, we struggled for a bit as to why other payers wouldn't give us contracts under the value-based care model that we were looking for. And then we realized that those scenarios um, weren't matching up with what the insurances necessarily needed. And that we had to think holistically, not just about what we were trying to do in our case with the patient, but how do you line that work up with what an insurance needs to deliver? 
And when you can bring proof points and you can bring um, the examples and structures about how you can help them accomplish their need to better manage patients and help lower the cost that they can uh, go out and sell their product for because you're successful keeping people healthy, then there creates better alignment opportunities. And that alignment, I believe, is the true core of value-based care. And it's what allows us to move forward and be successful and, and ultimately serve the patient and the community better. So that need, the payer need, is to reduce expense, right? So that they, they, they can go back to their employers and say, okay, well, we're not raising your rates this year, or we're only raising it 2% this year. Um, can you really get to, this is one of the things I've been struggling about for years, is can you really get to that notion of, of the value-based care without having the payer and the provider under the same roof? I think you can, but it's a harder journey. And especially when you think about how you get started, having the integrated delivery network with the payer as part of the family makes it easier. We made the decision as a team that it made sense to bring that together. And we just did it because we could. Um, mm -hmm. The other payers, we were confused why they weren't coming to the table until we realized they actually make their money by managing the risk. So why would they give that function to somebody else? Um, and we first thought, well, who wouldn't want to give up risk and minimize your risk? Well, that, that's what they do. And they're pretty darn good at it. So then you have to bring in the process of how we can deliver from the patient side. And uh, we can deliver better outcomes. We can lower the cost because we're effectively aligned. And that's where the, the turnaround comes back to them. Not only can they sell a product at a lower cost, but they can also let employers and others who buy insurance know through our network, we can create better health for your people. We can take care of them in a more proactive and effective way. And all of that helps, I believe, the insurance do their job and, and sell their product and be successful. And so if you don't have the health plan, you have to figure out how to take those first steps with that. And uh, we've had the blessing and opportunity of really learning and showing some of those examples because we were able to go on that journey with our own, our own payer. Uh, if you don't have that, then you've got to build your case um, without that piece initially. Um, I do think it's feasible. I think there's a lot of systems out there now that are doing some things here uh, without owning the payer side, but uh, did help it, made it easier in those early years for us. So on a related point, Sorry, I'm bouncing around a lot here, um, Rob, but these are these are all hot topics that I wanted to make sure that we we got to. Um, you know, it's it seems like and our research measured this that at, at the onset of COVID-19, and you track this over time, and I know I've brought this up on the podcast before, but so if, if I'm being duplicative, sorry, uh, listeners. Um the, the increased focus on social determinants and health disparities over time as a strategic priority of health systems, it was amazing to just watch this grow from the start of mid-2019 to the end of, um, or, sorry, 20, 2020 to the end of 2021. So my question is, um, has this always been a priority for Intermountain? Um, and even if so, what initiatives do you have in place or have what, what have you done? Because this is such a hot topic in healthcare these days. Really important topic, John, really important topic for us in healthcare. And when I look back at Intermountain in our history, it's always been in our DNA to think about how we serve the community at large, right? We want to take really good care of patients when they're in our hospitals and in our clinics, but we've always believed in our mission to serve the community broadly. And you think about population health, it's a terminology that evolved 
it's rolled in a, in a large way to the value-based care as well. Um, but it has some very distinct notions to looking at your entire population in the areas you serve, not just those that are your patient population or from an insurance perspective, your member population. So we always had this thought of we want to do good and impact our community largely, you know, have better health outcomes for the community at large because we're here and we're trying to serve well. And the, the things we do have a ripple effect, not just for the patients we're serving directly, but the education, you know, the opportunity to, to serve through different ways and meet needs in the community of the underserved population. That's always been part of who we are. Our mission, helping people live the healthiest lives possible, really directs that. The charge when we were formed in 1975 to be a model system uh, directs that for us. But during the pandemic, we learned some things we did not understand. We learned that our system overall, when you're talking about the health of a community at large, misses the reality of subgroups that have specific needs that may not be met um, effectively. And we started taking a deeper look at that, like I think many across the country have for sure, with an intent to understand where are the gaps. So we may be doing really well in stroke care, as an example, and the metrics have improved and the community's better off because of it. But where are the gaps in that? And we did a bunch of studies here a couple of years ago when this really came to the forefront to dive deeper through our clinical program uh, leaders, looking at can we find gaps in subgroups out in our communities that we serve? And, and stroke was one where we found a gap that was uh, quite interesting and appalling at the same time. So the data came back in. And what we learned by looking at the data differently and deeper was that in Utah area, Salt Lake area specifically, if your primary language is Spanish, your time to get stroke care from the onset of a stroke to getting the, the clot resolved is twice as long as if your primary language is English. Of course, in my role, my first response is, what in the world is going on? When that patient arrives at our hospital, what's, what's happening there? Why is it too slow? Are we, do we have a bias to folks? Do we not have the ability to translate? What is driving that difference in time? Because that was appalling to me. It was just appalling. I thought, how can this be? This just doesn't make sense. It's, it, it's hard to, to comprehend, and we have to fix this now. What we learned by diving into it was when you hit the ER door at our hospitals, whether you speak Spanish or speak English as your primary language, our time to take care of you for stroke is the same. There's no discernible difference with it. What was happening is out in the community. This is where you start talking about population overall, health, or going up the value-based care chain. If you speak Spanish in our community, we've not focused on educating you as much as we did on the English-speaking folks about how important time is when you're having stroke symptoms. And what symptoms should you be looking at? So, of course, immediately we got with the Spanish uh, media and started to, to build robust education plans, media blitzes to help that population understand what the English-speaking population has come to understand. In addition to that, we found that in our community, if Spanish was your primary language, part culturally, I think, but also circumstance of that subgroup here, you don't have as ready access to transportation. So where the English-speaking population may have a car or something readily available to get somewhere, the Spanish-speaking population is in a different situation um, in their living circumstance. And so they have to take time to arrange and get transportation to get to the hospital. So those were two of the main things we found that caused that doubling of time. Uh, so that was really interesting to learn. Um, it was good to know it wasn't the hospital side, but it doesn't change the reality that we have a subgroup in our community that needs a different level of care 
when they have a stroke, stroke symptoms to make sure that they get the best chance at recovery without future deficits. So those are the types of things we've been learning and focusing on and really driving now to help make the difference in the right places for those people. And I think there's a lot more to learn. And as a nation and as an industry, we've got to keep diving and looking and parsing data to make sure we're not just looking holistically at the health and wellness data, but we're looking at the subgroups to make sure we're meeting their needs, meeting them where they are to take good care of them. You know, it seems to me that that's, that is an appropriate um, uh, appropriate role for a health system that's thinking differently and thinking deeper. Like I always question, okay, well, should a, should a Kaiser be building homes or, you know, should, should a Montefiore be installing air conditioning units? And, you know, it's kind of like, this is a targeted focus, not that that's not um, wonderful that they're doing that. But there's this balance of, okay, well, what really, what should the government do? What should local government do? What should taxes pay for? What should a health system? And going on to, uh, you know, our, our earlier uh, point about financials, there's only so much you can do, especially as in, in these, you know, kind of lean years. Um, so you kind of touched on this. I wanted to, I wanted to finish with this last question about mission. Um and broadly speaking, what is your mission? And I'm not necessarily saying your personal mission, but the mission of the organization. And, and how are you realizing that mission today? Yeah, our mission is helping people live the healthiest lives possible. And, and I love our mission. Um, when we updated it uh, many years ago, I didn't uh, find one person inside our system who didn't love the mission. It really gets at the heart of who we are and why people get into healthcare. We want to help people. We want to help them be healthy. We want to help them live the fullest lives that they can. And it is important to us that we do that. And that means that uh, in our journey, we engage as many people as we can upstream. How do we help educate you? How do we help support you so that your health needs are met proactively? Um, when you need uh, the high-end care in our acute facilities, we want to do that very well, like we always have focused on but we just as soon keep you healthy and out of the hospital. And to the extent we can get the revenue contracts that way under the value-based care arrangements, it allows us to do the other work in alignment and, and keep you more healthy. And then, um, you know, as you move further uh, down the road and you, and you get that great care, um, then we want to cycle that back around and make sure your journey is holistic, that it's good and that you have what you want. And in our communities, we take it seriously over the 630,000 square miles that our new uh, expanded organization covers. We want to look at that and figure out how we do that well. And there's, we've given some examples already here. I'll talk about rural health briefly. Um, we want to keep people in their local communities as well with rural health. We do that through telehealth. We have tele-oncology, tele-ICU. There's a lot of things people can get at home and they're better off if they can. And, and our desire is to keep you there where you want to be close to your family and uh, help you on your journey. The, the challenge is uh, you have to meet people where they are. And I think as an industry, historically, we've looked at the blocks, just like the equity issues. We've looked at the whole block altogether. Now with equity, we need to look at subgroups. But I also think to take that mission and drive it home, we have to look at the individual. How do we meet you where you are? How do we partner with you for what you need? We want to be the preferred partner in your health and healing journey. And uh, we love that. We love that as our aspiration under our mission to move forward with. We have 60,000 caregivers who strive every day to help us deliver that well as an industry and at Intermountain Healthcare. We've got more work to do. And I think the future 
although we've talked about how challenging it is right now, I also think the future is very exciting. John, we have an opportunity and sometimes crisis, uh, you know, uh, bears out these opportunities better than when we're in a normal, uh, good, uh, positive state of things. And sure. we have an opportunity as an industry now to figure out how to adjust what we're currently doing to better meet those needs. And there's frankly, given the crisis we're in, a demand that we do things differently. So let's take that opportunity. Let's get better. Let's focus and meet people where they are and uh, reset the health industry and the health systems for the future in a good way that serve people well. You know, last thought is when you talk about meeting people where they are, I just get the sense that over the last, let's say, 10 years, maybe maybe more, that that there's an expectation that this is consumer driven, right? It's a, there's an expectation that if I want to see my doctor in person, I can see my doctor in person. If I want to fire up my computer and do a quick telehealth visit, um, however it is that I want to get my care or I want to receive my care, then I'm going to be driving that. Do you get a sense that that's, that's also been the case? Well, I mean, John, just think about uh, what happened during the pandemic for all of us, right? Online shopping, you know, it, uh, it was yeah. a little concerning sometimes to see how often Amazon showed up at my front door when uh, you know, I was working from home. Uh, you know, if you weren't already on that, if you weren't the early adopters, uh, we became adopters um, quickly. Uh, you think about that evolution of how you get service from other industries and how customer focused they are and how much they understand you and how to meet you where you are. You know, go on, go on the Internet and search for something. Uh, you know, if I want to go on and and then buy some uh, golf balls on the internet rather than run to the store. How often then the, the ads start popping up around golf balls? Uh, you know, they know That's what right. you're doing right. and, and respond to you in order to, to make sure that, uh, you know, they're feeding you what they think you, you want and need. We're way behind in healthcare in understanding the consumer well, but we have to understand the consumer is having experiences every day with others. And if healthcare doesn't match up to that experience, it's not going to feel right um, for the people we're trying to serve. And frankly, we're going to miss opportunities to serve them because there is plenty of private equity funding coming into niche services focused on this very thing around the healthcare industry. And, and our job is to take care of people holistically. Many of those companies are coming in looking at the niche opportunities. We have a different overall purpose, not bad, not good. Uh, it's a different overall purpose. And we have the opportunity to stitch it together, but we're going to have to do the types of things people expect. Um, and it's very different than what they expected 10 years ago, maybe even just three years ago. Yeah, very true. Rob Allen, it's been a pleasure. It's been good getting to know you. I hope we can keep in touch. And uh, thank you so much for taking time out of your super busy day to, to do this pod. I really appreciate it, your time. John, thank you. My pleasure for sure. You have a great day. You too. On behalf of all of us at Darwin Research Group, thanks for listening. Healthcare Rounds is produced and engineered by me, Sam Yates, with theme music by John Marchica. Darwin Research Group leverages the power of information to enhance human health by providing advanced market intelligence and in-depth customer insights to healthcare executives. Our strategic focus is on healthcare delivery systems and the global shift toward value-based care. Check us out at darwinresearch.com. See you next round.